Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. It's a little mind-blowing and humbling, isn't it? Father, we do thank you that you are that God. It says that uh, the heavens is like the span of your hand. It's hard to even comprehend even the smallest portion of that. And yet you look down upon us and we are important to you because we bear your image, especially for those of us, Lord, who uh, have accepted your son. You love us. And that's the kind of what we've been talking about through the songs and everything else this morning. It is such a wonderful and awe-inspiring thing to know, even more than the size of the heavens, the fact that the God of the heavens would uh, stoop down and love people like us. Help us to uh, understand your word this morning, Lord. And uh, use it to let us have a bigger picture of who you really are. We ask in your name. Amen. One day a man went to the DMV and stood in line for what seemed like forever. When it was finally his turn, the clerk typed his name to the computer and said, That's odd. What's wrong? the man asked. She replied, my computer says you are deceased. The man looked around and muttered to himself, great, I guess this means I died and went to hell. (laughs) I have to wonder if King David didn't feel that way at times with all the things that he went through. Steve shared that PowerPoint New Year's Eve and I thought it went really well with the section that we're in. Because I can imagine David as a shepherd boy staring up into the night sky, pondering the things of God. And with no light pollution, I'm sure it was just a staggering display of beauty. You see, despite all the hardships that David endured in his life, he always came to the fact, back to the fact that his God was ultimately in control of everything. In fact, we know that the beauty of the heavens even made it into some of his psalms. Allow me to grab just a couple of verses out of Psalms chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? And the Son of Man, that you should care for him. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. In Psalm 18, recorded here in 2 Samuel chapter 22, we feel the spiritual pulse of a man who is called a man after God's own heart. You may be wondering, why is this psalm repeated in two different places? I suggest one is for the purpose of history and the other is for the purpose of prophecy. The second Samuel rendering recounts the history of King David, 
But the Psalm 18 rendering speaks of the life and work of our greater than David, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1 with me. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we find a prayer prayed by Hannah, the mother of Samuel, long before David was born. That, that prayer concluded, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, he will give strength to his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. The books of Samuel have told the long story of this king and the fulfillment of Hannah's words. David's song near the end of 2 Samuel contains many echoes of Hannah's prayer. Essentially, it celebrates the fact that Hannah's prayer was fulfilled. Warren Wiersbe writes, 1 Samuel chapter 2 records the song Hannah sang when she brought her son Samuel to serve the Lord at the tabernacle. And 2 Samuel chapter 22 records the song of David after the Lord helped him defeat his enemies. Wiersbe concludes, How significant that the two books, full of burdens and bloodshed, are bracketed by praise. No matter how dark the days or how painful the memories, we can always praise the Lord. But I want us to notice something. At the end of verse 1, David is praising God that God has delivered David from all of his enemies. But then at the end, he tacks on a little phrase. And from the hand of Saul. David purposely separates the two and doesn't include King Saul in that first group of enemies. Note that Saul is not included among David's enemies. For no matter what Saul ever did to him, David never treated Saul like an enemy. Let's not pass over those words too quickly. You tell me, if at your dinner table someone threw a spear at you not once, but two different times, would you consider that person to be an enemy? Or someone continually sends groups of soldiers to murder you, would you consider that person an enemy? Did you know that just in a mere two chapters, 1 Samuel 18 and 19, Saul tries to kill David at least 12 different times? And yet David makes it a point not to include Saul when he refers to those that he considers to be enemies. And I have to ask myself, why? I think, and you can feel free to disagree if you want to be wrong, but I believe that David knows that Saul was anointed by God to be the king. And as such, I think that David believed that whatever Saul attempted to do, it was ultimately God that was allowing it. This is why even on the occasions when David had the opportunity to kill Saul, he would never do it. In fact, he was full of remorse just for cutting off the edge of Saul's garment. What I'm trying to get us to see is David understood Romans 8.28 long before it was ever written. It's a verse people love to quote. It reads, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good, to those who love God, and to those who are called according to his purpose. The, but the problem with people quoting and claiming that verse is it's often taken out of context. Yes, 
It is true that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. But the question we need to consider is at the end of that verse. What is God's purpose? Well, in context, it's the very next verse. This is verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That teaches us that, yes, God does work all things together, but it is for the express purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. But here's the rub. Very often it is the trials and the tribulations of life that God uses as his means of molding us into the image of his son. Years ago, Scott Peck wrote a book and the opening line was, Life is difficult. The Apostle Paul could have written that. And since it's only us here this morning, let's just be honest and admit that no matter how much we love the Lord, And no matter how devoted we may try to be, life can still be very, very difficult. Maybe you've heard that story about the lost dog. His owner ran a simple advertisement in the paper. It read, lost, brown dog with three legs, blind in one eye, deaf in one ear, and has a missing tail. Answers to the name, Lucky. Maybe you feel that way this morning. Maybe like that dog, you feel broken and maimed. And even though the Bible assures us of God's love and care, when you look at all the wrong things in your life and all the unfulfilled dreams, you sure don't feel very blessed. This is nothing new, however. After delivering the Israelites from Egyptian bondage, God continually provided for their well-being as they faced the harsh obstacles of the Sinai Desert. And as Moses proclaimed the law to Israel, he reminded the people in Deuteronomy 8.15, where it is written, He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of the hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. That passage teaches us that the Lord did not lead his people through 40 years of difficulty and hardship to bring them evil, but to bring them good. But it is the good that must sometimes come by way of divine discipline and refining. And although the truth is often difficult to recognize and accept, The Lord causes even the evil things in our lives to work together for our good. And it is these less obvious and less pleasant channels of God's blessing that Paul seems to be emphasizing here. It is those things among the all things that in themselves are anything but good. So we have learned this morning that all things are working together for good for those who love God. And yet Jacob in the Old Testament declared the exact opposite thing. Do you remember the story? Famine was in the land. His wife Rachel was dead, and he thought that his beloved Joseph, his beloved son Joseph was dead as well. His oldest son Simeon was being held hostage in Egypt, and the man in charge was saying to them, 
I will give you no more supplies until you bring your youngest son Benjamin to me. It was more than Jacob could bear. Genesis 43:26 records for us his honest and heart-wrenching reply. He said, "All things are working against me." Now what does Romans 8:28 say? "All things work together for good." But what does Jacob declare? Everything is working against me. Simeon is a hostage. Joseph is dead. And my son Benjamin is soon to be taken away also. That's interesting, isn't it? Although Jacob didn't realize it, at this point he was completely wrong in his outlook. Joseph was in perfect health. Benjamin would return and Simeon would soon be released. I wonder how many times I have been guilty of that exact same thing. How many times have I moaned and lamented that everything is against me and the whole time I am categorically wrong on every single solitary point? If a person loves and trusts the Lord, if they are convinced that God is the all-wise and good Father, then they can humbly accept everything that he sends our way. Now, if we look at it that way, in many ways, this part of the verse is like a character reference for God. It's like those times when your own earthly father would do something you cannot understand. You say to the father, I can't figure out what you are doing, and it doesn't make any sense to me, but I trust your character to always be good. Now let me ask you parents, just like that, have you ever possessed knowledge that your child just didn't understand? There you are on the 4th of July, trying to get that charcoal going, but it just won't stay lit. Then your 7-year-old brings over the gas can while your back is turned and dumps a bunch on it, trying to be a big help. Quick safety note, I did something like that once and almost burned down the entire backyard. There were big black spots of burnt grass for weeks following. Looked like there had been a UFO invasion at my house. Look, I know I blame the church for my being crazy, but truth be told, I've been crazy about as long as I can remember. Look at verse 2 with me. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. David employs a number of different images to convey one truth. His God makes him safe. The Lord is a rock sheltering David from danger. He is a strong and secure fortress. He is a shield protecting him from shields and spears. The Lord is a stronghold, which is a place high above the dangers and threats. And finally, the Lord is a place of refuge. These images describe the wonderful word Savior, for that is what God is. As I was reading that in preparation for today, it reminded me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 7:24. He said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, 
and did not fall, for it was founded upon the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Here's the familiar story of two different men building houses. Both men used the same material, both built in the same geographical location, but one man's house stood while the other man's house collapsed. The only difference was in the foundation. One built on the rock, while the other one built on the sand. Now, in Palestine, all land becomes parts in the summer, causing even the sandy places to look uh, rock solid. And so the true test doesn't come until the rain falls. Jesus here is saying, be careful where you build your house. Build on something tried and true. Build on the rock. But who is the one who builds his house on the rock? Jesus says it's the one who hears the words, but not only hears them, he also does them. And so, who is the one who builds on the sand? He's the one who also hears the words, but he does not do them. One of the great dangers, I think, of those of us who love the scripture is to think somehow that hearing is the equivalent of doing. We have such need to hear these words because Bible students are in great danger of being foolish men who erroneously conclude that because we are hearing the truth and agreeing with the truth, that we are automatically practicing the truth. James puts it like this in James 1.22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. This teaches us that the wise man and the discerning woman not only hear Jesus' words, but also puts those words into practice. And their house will stand when the storms of life come. Another point of David's exuberant words is that this is very personal to him. He is my rock, my fortress, my shield, my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. You save me and only because of that am I saved. You see, for David, knowing about God was not being religious or giving existence to or giving existence meaning or adding a spiritual dimension to his life. It was about being safe from real and threatening dangers. And by the way, everybody needs a refuge. You need some place you can go to escape the worries and fears of this life. You need to have some place of safety where you don't have to be afraid. Somewhere where you can catch your breath and get your strength so you can go back out and face this cold, cruel world. The good news is, the Lord wants to be that refuge. He wants you to come to Him and let Him hide you in His love and care and shelter you. Everybody also needs a rescuer, because no matter how careful or cautious we are, trouble will eventually find us. As a matter of fact, trouble can sometimes even overwhelm us. Bills pile up. Your health starts to fail. 
Your home life gets shaky. And before you know it, you seem to be drowning in problems. And don't forget about the biggest problem that we all have, and it is this. What to do with the guilt of our sins? Who will rescue us from that disaster? The Lord also wants to be that rescuer. He wants you to cry out to him when you get in over your head, and you're going down for what you think is the last time. He wants to reach down to wherever you are and save you. Remember, the shortest prayer in the Bible was prayed by Peter after he walked on the water, but then he saw the waves and became afraid and began to sink. Which shouldn't be surprising. After all, his nickname was Rock, and so he started sinking like a rock. But he simply prayed three words, Lord, save me. That's a great prayer. It's got the Lord on one end and me on the other and salvation sandwiched in between. I don't know if you can do any better than that praying. Verse 4, please. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. David has been describing the attributes of God concerning those who love him. But we do play a part, and it is simply this. We are to call upon the Lord. Now that seems like a no-brainer considering how very difficult and challenging this life can be. But how often do we call upon the Lord only as a last resort, and only after we have exhausted every other possible avenue of rescue in our lives? Leonard Ravenhill writes, No man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The congregation who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. We have many players and payers, but few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. And so failing here, we fail everywhere. I think basically what Ravenhill is saying is that instead of praying, most of us are prone, at least initially, to trust in our own strength and our own abilities. Even though Psalm 6011 says, Oh, give us help against our adversaries, for vain is the help of man. But sometimes I think the adversary is our own foolish pride, and the vanity of help comes from our own lives. See, our problem is we can delude ourselves into thinking that we are the captain of our fate and we really don't need anything or anybody. And that sounds robust and independent. I don't need nobody. Faith is for weak people. That sounds proudly self-sufficient, doesn't it? I don't need anybody. Well, until you cough into that tissue and you see bright lumps of bright red blood, and then suddenly you are faced with the fragility of your strength and the brevity of your life. You are only fooling yourself if you don't think you don't need anyone to navigate these waters of life. And so I urge all of us to carve out a section of time every day to read God's word and seek him in prayer. Or we would be like a man that I read about this week. This man was once cutting down a tree with an obviously blunt axe. But he was only bruising the bark as the sweat poured from his brow. 
Someone watched and suggested that he stop for a few minutes and sharpen his axe. To which the man replied, I'm too busy chopping the tree to stop for anything. But if he would have stopped just for a few minutes and sharpened the axe, he would have sliced through that tree with much greater ease. And very much like that. If we would stop at the beginning of each day and sharpen our spiritual axe through prayer and meditation of Scripture, we would also slice through the day with greater ease than just trying to do it in our own strength. Look at verse 5 with me, please. When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. This is a poetic description of the many occasions when David's life was threatened. First, as a raging flood threatened to overwhelm him, then an animal trap threatening to ensnare him. The forces assailing him were death and destruction. The language is extreme here because David was not thinking of minor difficulties to be overcome or just small problems to be dealt with. He was threatened with utter destruction. Whether it was Goliath, Saul, or any number of others, their objective was nothing less than David's death and the annihilation of his kingdom. Now perhaps in our rather comfortable and peaceable age, we do not feel this so intensely or frequently. But even for us, there are times when we feel that chaos threatens to undo our lives and we can no longer cope with all the pressures that are against us. We are afraid that everything is going to collapse around us or the bottom is about to fall out of our lives. And of course, like David, everyone in here are all going to be confronted by their death. We know what David was talking about, even if for some of us it's not as powerful and often as what he had to deal with. As we close, a pastor was traveling on a train and met a Christian man seated facing him. They struck off a conversation. The young man was obviously very despondent about life. He felt so weak in his faith and so discouraged that he told the pastor he just couldn't stand it anymore. The pastor said, yes, surely you can stand and you will stand strong. But it didn't seem like his words were getting through. And so the pastor took a pencil from his pocket and said, well, try to make this pencil stand on the table. Of course, on a moving train, that is about impossible. However, the young man did try a few times, but failed. The pastor says, watch, I will make this pencil stand despite all the shaking. He then he wrapped his hand around the pencil while placing his hand on the table. See, it stands. You're cheating, the man retorted. The pastor replied, no, I'm not. I didn't say you couldn't hold on to it. He then looked him in the eye and said, God is holding you, young man. You stand because he is holding you up, but you cannot stand on your own. But with his hand around you, you will stand. And the same thing is true for us also. If everyone in this life would turn against us and leave us, if we are Christians, we are never alone. Listen to how the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Timothy 4.16. He said, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May not be counted against them. Then I love verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. 
and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Father, it is good to know that, once again, the God who sits upon the throne of the universe, with this earth just being his footstool, that you also care for us, or that your hand is around us, that you love us, Father, and you want the best for us. I pray that you would fill everyone in here, Father, with that knowledge, wherever they are at with you, Lord. Cause them to realize, Father, that you are there and that you want them to be in a relationship with you. And for those of us who are, you want an even closer relationship with us. That's these things in Christ's name. Amen. Being the first Sunday of the month, ask Pastor John and Elder Haynes to come up for communion. Please take the elements and take them back to your seat, and we'll take them together.